Abstract Doctors podcast special, The Abstract Veterans Series. Today, Char Gatlin and Dr. Ron Seal speak with Dr. Clara Dismuke-Greer. For more information, please visit limbic-cenc.org. Visit The Abstract Doctors for information and upcoming podcasts. The Abstract Doctors podcast. The doctors are in. Open up your mind and say ah. Good morning and welcome back, listeners, to yet another episode of our Abstract Veteran Series with myself, Char Gatlin, and my esteemed co-host, Ron, Dr. Ron Seal. Before we begin, Ron, I just want to say I spilled coffee all over myself this morning. You know, it's just one of, <laughs> one, one of those days. So it brings up, I guess, the first question of the day, Ron. Is it, is it caffeinated or decaffeinated? What are we going with today? Oh, always caffeinated. Yeah, yeah I, I, did, I did that a few weeks ago. I, I I put a cup of coffee. I, I was trying to get my son out the door to drive him to school, and I and I hadn't had time to drink my coffee. I put it up on the dashboard, buckled, took off coffee. <laughs> my son was laughing his tail off about it. I'm glad we're doing the Zoom stuff because I've got coffee all over the place here. So I'm I'm doing my best like a duck. I'm looking good up here, but not so much way down here where the, where the legs are turning. But yeah. Uh, anyway, so so welcome back, listeners. Today we have a very special guest. We have Dr. Libby uh, Greer. Dismuke Greer. Did I get that correct, Dr. Okay, great. Always like to double check. And just as a heads up at the end of the show, we're going to have a quiz for you, Dr. Dismuke Greer, about who had the best questions, who had the best one-liners and the best jokes between between Ron and I. We're looking at this sort of the long range here, seeing how we, how we come back. And our jobs are always up in the air, too, for doing this. So we have to we have to stay on it. But uh, all, all kidding aside, glad to have you here. So tell us a little bit about yourself, where you're from, and maybe sort of outline your, your study for the audience for us. Thank you so much uh, for having me. This is my first podcast. I confess, so um, I'm very excited uh, to be here with you and so excited to work with uh, Limbic Sensi. Um, so I am a health economist by training. I have a PhD in economics, actually from a business school, but I did my um, doctoral thesis back in the day on the economic impact of HIV and AIDS on the state of South Carolina. So it was um, an exciting, time to, to get into healthcare was at sort of the height of the concern about HIV and AIDS in the country. And, um, <clears throat> excuse me, and then I went actually overseas. I lived in Portugal for almost 10 years and I worked for a university there and I did work, some work with the Ministry of Health in Portugal. And it was there that I started reading a lot of studies about the VA because um, the VA has a budget. It's a government entity and a budget, very similar to some countries' healthcare systems like Portugal that also um, are government-run healthcare systems. And so that's when I started reading my first VA studies. When I came back to the United States, I went to work for a medical university with a group of health economists. And um, then in... 2009, I joined the VA in Charleston, South Carolina, uh, with a coin that's a center of uh, innovation. And that center was focused on equity and health. But 
and I had in my mind from the get-go, um, I wanted to do research in traumatic brain injury. Um, I just had that, it was a important issue um, for the VA and not much had been done in the area of economics. So I really wanted to study that area. And so I started doing some work in the area of traumatic brain injury, especially with some work in the area of disparities in survival um, and some economic work. And in about 2015, I was on detail to the Office of Health Equity at Baco. And I attended a conference on brain injury where I met the great David Sifu. And I had a poster on uh, some work I had done in TBI and Dave came and saw my poster and we started talking. And then uh, while I was in the Office of Health Equity, there was my um, supervisor, she was friends with uh, Dr. Amalo, who, as you remember that movie Concussion, the doctor that is the subject of that movie, um, she said, I would like to have him uh, interview. And she said, who's the best person in the VA to talk about traumatic brain injury? And I said, David Sifu. So she got in touch with Dave and they had a conversation and I was excited because I was on the call with them facilitating. And so then Dave said to me, would you like to join Lim Limbic? Or well, at the time it was Cincy. Um, and do some economics work because they, he said, I thought in my mind that we needed to bring on a health economist. So that's how I joined uh, Cincy, now Limbic. And I just love it. I mean, the, the opportunity to work with all these scientists of all kinds um, as a team has just been extremely rewarding for me. Um, so that's my background. Yeah, why don't you tell us a bit about this particular study here? Because uh, um, I know you've done a number of health economic studies, uh, you know, for this uh, for this grant. Right. Um, uh, but you know, this one on traumatic brain injury and dementia uh, and 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 the costs associated uh, uh, is really pertinent, I think. Thank you very much. So yeah, so this study came about because um, there has been some important findings of the relationship between traumatic brain injury and dementia. A lot of the, the limbic team have been working in that area, especially Christine Yaffe and Mary Jo Pugh. They've both done epidemiological studies um, looking at the relationship between traumatic brain injury and um, dementia. And they are both on this study. So um, based on their guidance of what to look for in terms of diagnosis codes, I created a large cohort of, vet of veterans using VA administrative data. So the VA has a wonderful source of data, a very unique source of data called um, Vinci, VA Informatics and Computing Infrastructure. And in that database, we have all care that veterans use within the VA, whether it's inpatient care, outpatient care, pharmacy, and including both 
VA facility care and non-VA facility care. So there's always been the ability for um, referrals to non-VA care when there was a problem in obtaining VA facility care for a veteran. But with first what was called CHOICE and now the Mission Act, um, there was a big emphasis on reducing wait times and also allowing veterans who lived within a certain um, range of VAs, like 40 miles, um, to be able to use non-VA care and the VA would pay for it. So the, the records that I have access to include all of that, that type of care and includes their diagnoses, their utilization, as well as their cost. And so we created a cohort, a 20 year, um, it's a 20 year study. The cohort actually consists of all veterans using VA care, whether inpatient or outpatient, between 2000 and 2015, who have a diagnosis code for traumatic brain injury. Now, because we identify the cohort that way, it's important to say that these traumatic brain injuries could be from service or they could be stateside. In other words, they could have acquired, gotten these brain injuries while when they became veterans, you know, through the same way that civilians get brain injury, car crashes and um, falls and sports and that kind of thing. So we requested this cohort and then we followed these individuals all the way from their entry into the cohort, or in other words, when they first show up with a TBI diagnosis all the way through 2020. And we get all of their cost data for this time period. Uh, it's important to say that um, because the cost data go from 2000 to 2020, we have to use inflation adjustment because over time costs change partly due to inflation, partly due to real things, but also partly due to inflation. So all this um, data is inflation adjusted. So I, I have to make that statement as an economist. Um, it's also important to, to understand that as we're looking at this data um, over time, for these veterans, we wanted to make a comparison between the different groups. So the question was, what cost do dementia bring in addition to having a traumatic brain injury? So we actually ended up creating a comparison between individuals with both TBI and dementia diagnosis if they got a dementia diagnosis after they had their TBI compared with those who had TBI only, in other words, no dementia, and then another group that were dementia only, in other words, just dementia, no TBI, and a group with neither TBI or dementia. And we ended up following 779,000 veterans with a huge um, cohort to be able to compare. It's, and it's so we used some important um, statistical techniques then to look at the different categories of care. 
we wanted to compare two different ways. We wanted to first compare what were their inpatient VA facilities, inpatient non-VA facilities, outpatient VA facilities, outpatient non-VA facilities, and pharmacy costs on average per year per veteran in those different groups. So that was one way we looked at it. And then the other way we looked was a over time. So we then said, we wanna now focus in on the TBI dementia cohort, those who had TBI and dementia. We wanna look what were their costs to the VA one year after their TBI dementia diagnosis, five years after their TBI dementia diagnosis, and then 10 years or more after their TBI dementia diagnosis. So we wanted to see what happens, not just on average every year, but what happens one year out, five year out, years out, 10 years out. And then the other very important thing we did was separate these cohorts into an under 65 group and an over 65 group. Two reasons for that. One was um, some of the work, especially Mary Jo Pugh had done, showed that the diagnosis codes for dementia in under 65 population can be very different from those in the over 65 population. And so it was very important to separate, separate the younger people with dementia from the older veterans with the dementia. I wanna stop you right there for just a moment. Yes. You mentioned something uh, a few minutes, and it's great, great information that some of our listeners out there may or may not be <clears throat> familiar with. And that was the Mission Act that was uh, enacted, I believe in 2014, the People's Cho the Choice Act. And I think in 2019, it was renamed the Mission, if I'm not, I'm not That's mistaken right. on that. And what that was, was that if you had an individual that lived, and I think you said it 40 miles or so away from a VA facility, that individual, you know, through a process could seek care in a civilian setting, um, you know, somebody that was closer. You know, one of the challenges, and I think we should highlight this because of the healthcare ec economic impact that you're bringing to the table here, is that in a lot of rural states, that 40 miles was, was drawn by someone way back east with a with, with a map and a straight line. And what they didn't account for was when you look at a map, it kind of does this with all the topographical components. So that 40 miles could become about 100 by the time you went around lakes and over mountains and underpasses and so forth. So while it did meet with a lot of success, there were a lot of challenges that, that occurred. And to some, this may be something to think about when it way down the road. I don't, I'm not trying to, I don't have to study, but look at some of how those healthcare economic costs were associated with rural states. You know, an additional cost with transportation and the quality of life components and, and things of that nature. Um, but I had one one question in looking through the, the manuscript. Uh, a lot of this, and I see it a lot within the study, is, is substance abuse. Could you define substance abuse with respect to your study and sort of how it how it factors in? Um, unfortunately, it's I, I don't want to go out on a limb here, but I see a common occurrence with, with some of our population, veteran population, and maybe tie that in just a little bit better so they, they understand. Yes. So one of our important findings in this study, probably one of the most important findings was we saw a very big difference in the under 65 population and the over 65 population with respect to these costs. And especially we saw 10 years after their TBI dementia diagnosis, those under 65 had a 28,000 $315 higher annual non-VA 
inpatient facility cost in years after 10 years. So we what we're seeing is a, a huge shift from VA care, facility care to non-VA facility care after an individual has had this diagnosis for 10 years if they're under 65. So we were trying to understand who these people are, why this might be happening. And we looked at their diagnoses and what we saw was there was an extremely high percentage of those um, with alcohol and drug abuse. In fact, 54.43% of veterans with traumatic brain injury and dementia under 65 had alcohol abuse. So that's over half had alcohol abuse and 43.82% of veterans with traumatic brain injury and dementia under 65 had drug abuse diagnoses. So almost half had drug abuse and over half had alcohol abuse. This is again un, in the under 65 population. So we're trying to understand why they're having these extremely high non-VA facility inpatient costs over time. This is important for them, obviously for the veterans themselves of, the, of you know, their issues um, and their health. Also important economically for the VA because as um, care is shifted from inpatient VA facilities to outpatient VA facilities and the VA is having to devote so much of its budget to non-VA care, um, that leaves less because we are on a fixed budget for VA facilities themselves. We also worry about the quality of care at that point and coordination of care. When care is in non-VA facilities, we don't know anything in the VA, we have all kinds of standards for quality. We, they're called sale measures. And so there, there's every VA facility has to meet many, many different quality measures. So we worry about what's going on with the quality of care outside. I mean, if the quality of care better is better outside, then perhaps it's worth it to spend that much money in non-VA care, but we don't know what the quality of that care is. We also know these individuals, these veterans have very high rates of drug and alcohol abuse. And this is a potentially a big issue for them health-wise. And you've hit on something that I, I brought up in, in the past on the show in some other areas, and it's the standards. You know, the standards of care between the VA and like maybe a state facility, maybe a nonprofit facility, an academic institution, even a tribal entity. And I think you and I have had that discussion offline. Yeah. It's different. And particularly when you don't have a centralized standard oversight you know where you where someone's coordinating between a federal agency and a state agency if you get you know duplication of services or or maybe you don't get a service because somebody thought it was duplicated so all you know all really strong you know strong identifiers to look at you know when it comes to a healthcare economic study then you toss in a rural state and you know all this that and the other eight months of winter and, and just as i mentioned a while ago the 40 the 40 mile straight line distance you know some folks need to don't necessarily know how to read a map but the um, one thing that I that was in the back of my mind thinking about this with with cost, you know, some some veterans may not have had outside insurance, so to speak, and to be able to to cover costs at certain facilities where others, you know, are eligible for VA services. And a lot of that, unfortunately, has to do with sort of disability ratings and, and you know the whole VBA component where they come in and what they're what they're eligible for. If you if you kind of went down that road, did you see any? 
I, I don't know, similarities or difference or something surprised you maybe when it came to sort of insurance and veterans being enrolled on the outside versus the VA. And what I mean by that, sometimes when I go to the VA, it always clicks up on the on the new screens that they have. I think it's screen number four. You know, they ask me about additional supplemental insurances that I may or may not have to offset costs. I just kind of toss it out there, run, run with it as you wish. Yes. Um, let me, if you don't mind, I, I'm going to look at this table to refresh my memory of what the insurance coverage looked like. We, we did have that information um, on these individuals. So let me just refer to a table to answer you on that one. Yeah, no, no I, I need to say those over 65 obviously have Medicare coverage at yes. that point. So over 65, um, they could very well be using um, Medicare to cover their expenses. Um, that's why, you know, why we're, I think we're seeing this really important effect in the under 65 um, group. And let me just tell you what we did see. We did see that in the TBI dementia group, 49.8% were VA only. So almost half of the TBI dementia group had only VA coverage. 48.4% um, had uh, Medicare or Medicaid and only 1.8% had any kind of private insurance. Wow. So only 1.8% had private insurance. Wow, I would have thought that number would have been higher, but wow, that's very telling, very telling statistic right there. Yeah. So. Um, that it's important to, to, to say that in this group, there was almost no, whether it, uh, uh, for the whole and cohort of TBI and dementia, only 1.8% with private insurance. One, one of the things that really jumps out at me, Libby, in looking at this is that, um, one, just so the audience knows, it looks like there's maybe about 5%, 4% of people uh, that, that had both TBI and dementia. Um, so it's a lot of people. It's about 35,000 people. Correct. But out of about 800,000, um, you know, it's, uh, I didn't want people to worry that, you know, 30%, 40% of people, you know, had this uh, dual uh, uh, diagnosis here. Um, but, but what really jumped out at me is the fact that you would think individuals with TBI and dementia would really have difficulty um, taking care of themselves. And then I see that 45% are either widowed or separated or divorced, you know, suggesting that, uh, you know, they might be out there on their own, yes. uh, maybe having real difficulty coping. They don't have a a person really to look out for them because I know in my history, you know, with uh, particularly with people with more severe traumatic brain injury, uh, that, you know, if they have a spouse around, you know, or if they're a little bit younger, an adult parent, I mean, you know, they get the helicopter treatment and, you know, they're not allowed to touch alcohol mm -hmm. or drugs. And if they have friends doing that, they're not allowed in the house, um, you know, but, but seeing those numbers, you know, you know, 11% single, uh, you know, you have a large amount of people who potentially are by themselves. Um, exactly. And, and that could also help account for the high rates of drug and alcohol abuse, right? If they're up mm -hmm. by themselves. And you could even maybe even more, more financial resources put towards caregiver costs. You know, especially when you get some of these, as, as Ron pointed out, you know, the, they're by themselves a lot of times in rural areas, you have to have that 
that home care, particularly for that over 65 population. And that brings in caregivers and, and nursing and a whole different, I mean, it's going to expand <laughs> a lot, but we're going to keep right. it to this, but, but and, yeah. And it could be the, that could be accounting for the high cost of the inpatient facility cost on it, right? Because if they don't have caregivers, if they don't have good caregiver coverage, I think you're making a very important point, Char. Um, they're just going to go into inpatient facilities and, and, and you know, um, seek care. That may be why we're seeing such high cost of non-VA facility inpatient care in, this, in these individuals. Yeah, and that's, you know, especially in some places that are challenged, you know, where there are not enough resources or beds, you know, we see that in the news every day. And unfortunately, it could allow for some of our, our older veterans and their families, you know, those that did it before us to fall through those cracks. Particularly when you have, as I, as we pointed out earlier, you know, different medical entities, tribal, state, federal, you know, right. throw in a, you know, a rural state or even in an urban setting, it, it could still, it could still happen in a big city. I mean, you know, how many times do you knock on the door and talk to your neighbor? You know, I mean, it's just, it's an unfortunate sort of facet of life that, that we live in. So, so an important, you know, you, you bring up a, this issue, an important point from this study could also be that the need to look into more home care, right, um, by VA um, for individuals with um, TBI and dementia, um, trying to make sure they can stay in their homes if they want to and give them the care they need in their homes so they're not having to resort to inpatient facilities. And that economically should also be beneficial because inpatient care is always the most expensive care. And um, if you can avoid inpatient care by providing care in the home, um, that, and, and generally people prefer to stay in their homes. And, and you're kind of hitting on it. So we're going to, we're going to run with this because this was my sort of next question was, you know, what do you, what do you think other clinicians and researchers, you know, in this field or related fields, if you will, you know, need to, need to take away from some of these findings and, and what do you foresee as, as other research opportunities based upon this? I mean, you've kind of hit it on it yourself, you know, with increased you know, resources, maybe to, to caregiving as opposed to inpatient, you know, run, run with it. I'd be curious to hear your thoughts as with our listeners. Yeah, I think that that is what we need to, to look at is to see, because um, in this study, we, we gave a broad overview of inpatient, outpatient pharmacy. We didn't get into the weeds of within outpatient care, for example, we didn't get into the weeds of what type of care that was. But there is a suggestion when you see high out inpatient care use or ED use, um, but in this case, inpatient care, that something, there is needs not being met, okay? Needs are not being met to keep people out of hospitals because that's always the goal, right? If you can keep people out of a hospital, um, that's what you want to do. And so there's a suggestion here that what needs to be studied going forward is to look at what type of care these individuals receive, if any, um, in the home to keep them out of inpatient facilities and what can be done. You know, um, obviously I am not a clinician um, or a healthcare provider, I'm a, I'm a health economist, but that's something that needs to be addressed with health providers 
the people who provide care, whether it's um, people who um, provide care to, to individuals with TBI specifically, or maybe geriatric medicine in, in the VA, um, maybe needs to expand the team. You know, they, these individuals may, if they're being seen by neurologists for their TBI and their Excellent dementia point. or neuropsychologists or um, those kinds of or mental, maybe some mental health individuals, obviously too, there's high substance use here. So something's wrong there, right? Um, maybe more mental health, maybe more geriatric care, looking at how teams can be expanded or created. Maybe there needs to be specific TBI dementia teams created within the VA to address all of their needs to reduce this use of the non-VA facility inpatient care. Interesting concept. Lippy. I'm sort of wondering, is it possible with the data you have, and you may have started looking at this already, is it possible to almost like build a uh, over time profile of when things happen for these individuals? In other words, you know, uh, what's happening, you know, if, if, if they had the data less than 20 years ago, uh, you know, what was happening before the TBI, TBI happens, when does the dementia happen? What other diagnoses sort of come up? When do you see a change in marital status in, in the records? Uh, I, I don't know if the, the detail, uh, the uh, you know, data is detailed enough to do something like that, but- it, uh, it, it, it is certainly, Ron, from a utilization standpoint, so mm -hmm. a diagnosis standpoint. So we have dates. Every claim in the VA, whether it's inpatient or outpatient or pharmacy, there are dates associated with it. And there, every diagnosis in the VA has a date associated with it. And that's how we knew the one, five, and 10 year, because we looked from their TBI, when did they get their dementia diagnosis? How far out was it? One year, um, you know, the time. And then we looked at their utilization of care past the the dementia diagnosis when you're five years, 10 years out for those who have that long of care. And obviously there's something that's triggered out at that 10 year point um, where we see big changes in the, that cost data for the under 65. So you're right. And we could, you know, I could with the help of a clinician who was telling me what to look for, we could go back and we could track a profile of an individual. We could certainly do that. Marital status can be a little tricky because um, that they tend to be time points. Whenever you request their demographic data, it tends to be the latest on them. So I'm not sure we could see their marital status changes in the VA records. Um, I don't know, we might, but I'm not sure. I've never looked for that. Um, but we could certainly see their diagnoses, their utilization of care, all of that as that happens over. Because even a even a drop in utilization of care could be an indicator. Yes, yes, yes. You know definitely. that maybe there's a certain time where uh, you know the system needs to be proactive and jump in. Well, I know we're at time here, um, and. Um, you wow, know, uh, um, it's been I, fun. I know. I, th I, I, I think people will appreciate here, you know, 
how many things you can do when you have data on 800,000 uh, veterans. And this is all de-identified data. We probably should have said that earlier. That's so correct. Those, uh, it is de-identified. Uh, yeah, there's concerned no, about that. no uh, names or social securities or, or anything. It says it's all de-identified data. And, um, and and what level of detail and thought it takes, and I think that really came out in your your talk. Uh, uh, people understand this is difficult work to do, and you have to be really thoughtful about it. We're gonna um, uh, we're gonna link uh, your study uh, with this podcast. And uh, I think if appropriate, I think uh, perhaps link, uh, I know that I'm a, a investigator on a study uh, providing um, uh, support to caregivers of individuals who have both TBI and dementia. Uh, and uh, while I, I guess it would be somewhat self-serving, uh, you know, to be uh, trying to get individuals uh, to participate in the study, um, it, it's, a, it's a really nice, uh, it's, it's, the study's called Hope Reach. And, oh, that'd be um, great. And I, I think, uh, you know, for those caregivers who are out there who are looking for some support, looking for some, you know, skills, what can I do? Um, it's a really nice study, uh, but I'm biased. Uh, uh, but, but we'll put a link to that as well. Oh, please do, Ron. Please do, because I think that's what we need now. Given what we've found, we need to understand what's happening with, with, with these individuals. And it's only through a state like you're doing that we can come to start understanding. Yeah, and it's a telehealth study, so you can be anywhere in the country and uh, participate in this. Char, what yes. closing thoughts? Why don't you close this out today? <laughs> yeah, we always always do a little bit of role reversal. No, it's very telling. It's it's a it's a very nice study. I mean, it's focusing on a population. It's focusing on a population that's going to be there. I'm middle aged, and I mean, I'm I'm headed uh, I'm headed in that direction, you know. And then, who knows? In 20 years, I could be the I could be the one for dementia, you know. I mean, my my cohort. Goodness gracious! I mean, we've been through a lot today. That's for sure. So that's why this is important. I mean, for some of our, I don't want to say middle aged veterans out there listening, but some of our our younger folks. You know, there's a time and a place and a day that we're all going to be there. And it's it's important that we address these issues now. It's important that we aggressively address these issues, not only for the generation that did it before us, but ourselves and unfortunately the generation that's coming behind us. That's just the way the cyclic, uh, cyclic nature. But to close on a positive thought, we were going to give you a quiz, but I think you pass the flying colors. I think our big takeaway, and the takeaway is definitely on my side, is that we need to mention seafood more. If we don't, I mean, I think that's how we secure our, our, our employment down the road. You know, so Ron, make sure you do three at three David Seafoods per next episode. I'll make sure I'll get my three in and then, and then we'll have, have something to fall back on. Um, no, but Libby, thanks for thanks for being part of this. Um, you know, thanks for thanks for breaking it down. You did a great job. I think our our viewers out there know that, particularly on the points that all data that is given is de-identified. I think that was a huge issue and misconception out there sometimes. Folks, when you come into these studies, you know, there's there's typical compliance rules, IRBs, all this kind of good stuff. You're de-identified. You know, Completely. So don't, don't don't let maybe um, you know a violation of, of what you perceive as privacy get in the way of you know coming forward and, and helping on, on particular studies and, and as I said helping out the the older generation ourselves and obviously the the generation behind us. But thanks for giving me a part of this and uh, our best to the sergeant major. We hope he's he's doing okay. Can we give him a couple of thumbs up? And you. Uh, you know the old the old army adage. You know the cure: take some Motrin, drink some water, and take a knee. And generally, it, uh, you'll you'll be a little bit better hopefully in ten minutes down the road. So. I think that's uh, <laughs> I think that's his remedies too. That's his remedies too. So thank you very much. And yeah, he inspires me. Being ma married to a sergeant major in the army uh, inspires my work every day. I, I imagine it does. All the veterans. <laughs> I imagine it does. Well, thank you once again. We wish you the best of luck in the study, and we look forward to seeing you again on the show. 
Thank you so much, Char. Thank you so much, Ron. Uh, it's been wonderful. I just love doing this. So hope to get to talk to you again about another study sometime soon. Absolutely. You take care. Thank you. Bye-bye. So, Ron, the coffee's finally dried on me, so I'm ready to get up once we click off and, and go pick up another cup. But uh, thanks for tuning in again today for a, yet another exciting edition of Abstract Veteran Series. On behalf of myself, my co-host, Dr. Ron Seal, and the, uh, the team that runs the machine, the Colonel, Miss AC, and Ron in the box up top, we'll see you next go around. Be sure to tune in. Until then, take care and be safe. Thank you to Dr. Clara Dismuke-Greer for joining Char Gatlin and Dr. Ron Seal today on the Abstract Doctors podcast special, the Abstract Veteran Series. For more information, please visit limbic-cenc.org. The Abstract Doctors is produced by The Abstract Athlete. For more information, please visit theabstractathlete.com. And as always, follow us on all of our social media platforms under The Abstract Doctors and The Abstract Athlete. The office is now closed, but join us for our next appointment soon.